Wednesday, May 11th, and this is VOS International Edition. I am Chine Duafo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, the U.S. top intelligence chief warns Russian President Vladimir Putin is preparing for a long conflict in Ukraine. The next month or two of fighting will be significant as the Russians attempt to reinvigorate their efforts. But even if they are successful, we are not confident that the fight in the Donbass will effectively end the war. A U.N. monitoring team in Ukraine says alleged violations of human rights by Russian forces may amount to war crimes. Head of the U.N. Human Rights Monitoring Mission in Ukraine, Matilda Bogner, says the evidence gathered so far does not scratch the surface of the extent of atrocities committed during that time. And Jordan's King Abdallah meets U.S. President Joe Biden Friday amid tensions with Israel. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. U.S. Director of National Intelligence Avery Haynes said on Tuesday that President Vladimir Putin is preparing for a long conflict in Ukraine and a Russian victory in the Donbass in the east of the country might not end the war. Russia, which caused the invasion, quote, a special military operation, unquote, poured more troops into Ukraine for a huge offensive last month in the eastern part of the country, but its gains had been slow. Haynes said that Putin was counting on Western resolve to weaken over time, and as the conflict continued, there was concern about how it would develop in the coming months. The next month or two of fighting will be significant as the Russians attempt to reinvigorate their efforts. But even if they are successful, we are not confident that the fight in the Donbass will effectively end the war. We assess President Putin is preparing for a prolonged conflict in Ukraine during which he still intends to achieve goals beyond the Donbass. But Putin most likely also judges that Russia has a greater ability and willingness to endure challenges than his adversaries. And he is probably counting on U.S. and EU resolve to weaken as food shortages, inflation, energy prices get worse. Moreover, as both Russia and Ukraine believe they can continue to make progress militarily, we do not see a viable negotiating path forward, at least in the short term. The uncertain nature of the battle, which is developing into a war of attrition, combined with the reality that Putin faces a mismatch between his ambitions and Russia's current conventional military capabilities, likely means the next few months could see us moving along a more unpredictable and potentially escalatory trajectory. Does U.S. Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haynes. U.S. lawmakers could vote as soon as Tuesday on a bill authorizing at least $33 billion in military and humanitarian aid for Ukraine. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said in a late Monday address that history will hold Russia responsible for its actions in Ukraine and that Europe has to consider the price Russia should pay for, quote, bringing the evil of total war to Europe again, unquote. In Ukraine, Russia has fired hypersonic missiles at the Ukrainian city of Odessa. Reporter Anna Chenikova in Kyiv speaks with Flashpoint's Ukraine's Steve Miller. There were seven missiles reported on Odessa in the region. Unfortunately, a lot, really a lot of damages. And unfortunately, all this continues today as well. So what we know so far is that there were at least three missiles called Calibre, which are supersonic and uh, uh, basically uh, very expensive to use. So, be, uh, so what we can see that Russian forces, they use very expensive and new stuff uh, in a mix together with 
the stuff which is super old and Soviet uh, times. So basically, all this creates, you know, this a certain um, a t t terror over the civilians because this old stuff they just fire them and they reach reach different different spots, civilian spots. So for the moment, we have the destruction, uh, complete destruction of the uh, mall, uh, civil mall uh, in Odessa, uh, central mall, and also uh, some tourist infrastructure, five buildings at least. Uh, at least one people is dead, uh, around 10 are injured. But again, uh, all this is continue to happen. And uh, today is also a very, very difficult day for Odessa. Anna, what about fighting in the Donbass? I understand there's been increased activity both in and around Izum and Sumy regions. Uh, yes, uh, very, uh, very heavy fighting going on. Uh, again, Donbass remains one of the most difficult um, battlefields for the moment. And Izum is one of the also one of the hottest spots uh, at the moment. So far uh, today in the morning, it was reported at least 44 bodies found uh, under the ruins of one of the civilian buildings in Izum, uh, which is, uh, of course, very dramatic. And uh, unfortunately, it's not the, the last uh, bodies that we're going to find. Uh, battles are very severe. And also um, Luhansk and Donetsk regions, um, again, no no really any extreme changes for the moment, but very heavy battles are going on. Uh, however, in Kharkiv region, Ukrainian forces made uh, certain success and uh, almost reached um, the territory of Russian border. So uh, here is uh, probably one of the main uh, region where uh, I can say that there are certain uh, extreme changes happening in terms of the battles. That's reporter Anna Chanikova in Kiev speaking with Flashpoints Ukraine's Steve Miller. A UN monitoring team in Ukraine says many violations of international humanitarian and human rights laws allegedly committed by Russian forces may amount to war crimes. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The team has documented hundreds of violations since Russia invaded Ukraine 76 days ago. However, head of the UN Human Rights Monitoring Mission in Ukraine, Matilda Bogner, says the evidence gathered so far does not scratch the surface of the extent of atrocities committed during that time. Latest reports put civilian casualties at more than 7,000, including about 3,390 killed. Bogner says the actual number is likely much higher. She adds each death is not just a statistic. Each death is a person whose life has been destroyed, whose dreams for the future have been obliterated. Russia has denied targeting civilians. Last week, Bogner and her colleagues visited 14 towns in the Kiev and Chernihiv regions that had been occupied by Russian forces until the end of March. She says people they met told them of relatives and friends being shot and killed by Russians while trying to escape. In one village, she says, they met a 70-year-old man who had spent 24 days hiding in the basement of a local school. He told us with tears in his eyes that he shared a 60, uh, 76 square meter room with 138 people. The youngest was just two months old. The space was so crowded that he had to sleep standing up, and so he tied himself to wooden rails to not fall down. Wagner says the monitoring team saw schools, hospitals, residential buildings destroyed in many areas visited. Throughout Ukraine, she says at least 50 Christian, Jewish, and Muslim places of worship have been damaged. She says the team has been receiving credible information on unlawful killings, torture, allegations of rape, including gang rape and disappearance. 
disappearances. We documented some cases where Russian armed forces and detained had detained civilians, mostly young men, and transferred them transferred them to Belarus and then Russia, where they have been held in pretrial detention centers. Overall, since the 24th of February, we have documented 204 cases of enforced disappearance, the overwhelming majority of them by Russian armed forces and affiliated armed groups. Wagner says her team has received reports of prisoners of war having been subjected to torture, ill treatment, and incommunicado detention by both Ukrainian and Russian armed forces. She notes this violates fundamental rules of international humanitarian law and must stop. She says the monitoring mission will release a report of its findings in June. While alleged abuses committed by both Russian and Ukrainian forces are documented, she notes the scale of violations committed by Russia is significantly higher. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Jordan's King Abdallah meets U.S. President Joe Biden in Washington Friday amid tensions with Israel over the management of Jerusalem's Islamic and Christian holy sites. Although Jordan is custodian of those sites under a 1994 peace treaty with the Jewish state, Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett recently announced the rejection of any foreign involvement on managing the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound there. For VOA, Dale Gavlak reports from Amman. Jordanian Foreign Minister Armin Safadi, who is accompanying King Abdullah on his U.S. visit, called the meeting with President Joe Biden important for the discussion of regional issues. Talks will also cover the recent surge of terrorist attacks in Israel, centered on Jerusalem and its holy sites, as well as the West Bank. The pending meeting between King Abdullah and President Biden comes about six weeks after the king held talks in Amman with Israeli President Isaac Herzog on regional issues. Herzog's trip to Jordan marked the first official visit there by an Israeli head of state. Speaking to Sky News Arabia, Safadi underscored Jordan's position that any measure that violates the status quo in Jerusalem is legally void dismissing any change to Jordan's continued custodianship of the Muslim and Christian holy sites. Palestinian journalist and analyst Daoud Kutab in Amman told VOA that any change would be a violation on three counts. The first is the status quo agreement by Ottoman Sultan Osman III in 1757 that regulates relations among all of Jerusalem's faith groups. The violation of the status quo agreement a 1757 agreement that has survived Turkish, the British, the Jordanian, and the early years of the occupation. Secondly, it's the violation of the understanding by Netanyahu, King Abdullah, and John Kerry in 2014, which stated that Al-Aqsa is for Muslims to pray and for all others to visit. And it's the Israel foreign minister Foreign Minister Safadi also urged Israel to preserve calm around those places, particularly the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound known to Jews as the Temple Mount. As custodian of the compound, Jordan tries to ease tensions between Israel and the Palestinians and has been heavily involved in efforts to maintain calm there. But the area has witnessed repeated violent clashes between Palestinians and Israeli police. Palestinian militant groups, Hamas and Islamic Jihad, also inflamed tensions by calling for stepped-up attacks in Jerusalem and the West Bank during the recent Muslim fasting month of Ramadan, which coincided with Passover in Easter this year. On Monday, King Abdullah met with Christian leaders in New York. Journalist Kutab noted that the king underscored the importance of Jordanian custodianship of Jerusalem's holy sites. They 
earn support for the king uh, as for protecting both Christian and Muslim polytheists in the system and the respect of the temple understanding. That same day, King Abdullah and Queen Rania received an award from the Road to Peace Foundation of the Vatican Mission to the United Nations. It recognizes their role in promoting interfaith dialogue, working for peace, and Jordan's humanitarian efforts in hosting refugees. Dale Gavlak for VOA News, Amman. Ankara is increasing pressure on Russia's military presence in Syria with its decision to close its airspace to Russian planes flying to the Middle Eastern country. Russian warships now are restricted from using Turkish waters to supply Damascus. And as Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul, analysts suggest Moscow has limited influence over Ankara. Ankara gave no official reason for closing its airspace until July to Russian civilian and military planes carrying troops flying to Syria. Ankara and Moscow backed rival sides in the Syrian civil war, but have been cooperating in resolving the conflict. Hussein Baja, head of the Turkish Foreign Policy Institute in Ankara, says the action comes as Turkey's shared opposition with its Western allies towards Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the basis for Ankara to repair its strained relations with Washington and its NATO partners. It is an important decision. Turkey needs F-16 and uh, the recent Turkish-American relations uh, improved uh, dramatically in this respect because probably the uh, Americans uh, bilaterally and the NATO as an institution insisted on it, trying uh, closing the increasing influence of Russia in, the, in Syria and in the Middle East in general. It is, of course, not uh, something that the Russians would like to see. Turkish airspace offers the easiest route for Russian planes supplying its military bases in Syria. Although there are alternative routes, says Zal Gazimov, a Russian expert at Bonn University. But Gazimov says the closure of Turkish airspace will stoke fears in Moscow that Ankara is cooperating with Washington to cut off Russian supply routes to Syria. To maintain the uh, airbase in Syria, uh, of course, the flight over the Turkish uh, airspace uh, and are of importance uh, for Russia. Uh, still, uh, Russia can use the airspace of Iraq and of Iran to reach its military bases in Syria. It's possible that Washington urges pressure on, on Baghdad to close the airspace. Russia's supplying of its military forces in Syria is already complicated by Ankara's decision to limit the use of Turkish waters by Russian warships based in the Black Sea under the International Montreux Convention. Doreen Jones, VOA News, Istanbul. In other news, the European Union's coordinator for talks to revive Iran's nuclear accord with world powers says he is traveling to Tehran as the bloc makes a last-ditch effort to salvage the Tara deal after a week-long standstill. Enrique Mora tweeted on Tuesday he would be meeting with the Iranian nuclear negotiator. The landmark accord in 2015 granted Iran sanctions relief in exchange for strict curbs on his nuclear program. Former President Donald Trump pulled the U.S. out of the deal four years ago, piling sanctions on Iran under a policy of, quote, maximum pressure, unquote. Talks to get both sides to return to compliance began in Vienna over a year ago, but spotted to a standstill. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua for Washington. The war in Ukraine cast a shadow of an international donors conference for Syrians Tuesday with their country now in its 12th year of conflict. 
Russia was not invited to the Brussels meeting where countries pledged billions of dollars in support for Syrians, but where some admitted to donor fatigue. Lisa Bryan reports from Paris. This was the sixth pledging conference hosted by the European Union, this time backdropped by a Ukraine conflict that has consumed the time and billions of dollars of Western nations. Despite declarations of support for Syrians, even EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell acknowledged Syria's fall from the international spotlight. Uh, Certainly Syria and the suffering of its people might not be in the center of the news anymore. There's a certain fatigue after 11 years, but it remains in our minds. The EU pledged more than $1.6 billion in humanitarian aid for Syrians this year, the same amount as last year. The U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, said the United States will contribute $800 million. Given the focus that all of you have and we have on Ukraine, I thought it was important for me to come uh, here from New York uh, to say that we have not forgotten the Syrian people. The U.S. and Europeans are targeting their aid to millions of displaced or otherwise struggling Syrians, along with countries hosting Syrian refugees. As before, Washington and Brussels have ruled out any funds going to rebuilding the war-shattered Syrian homeland. If you go and spend money reconstructing Syria, it's going to support the Syrian regime. We want to support the Syrian people. Humanitarian groups say that after years of conflict that have depleted their resources, Syrians face dire conditions. Here's Mark Kay of aid agency, the International Rescue Committee. And for the first time ever, really, when we speak to Syrians, they're saying they're less worried about bombs and bullets and they're more worried about dying from starvation. Uh, I think this is a real wake-up call to the international community is that we have um, a real potentially catastrophic crisis within a crisis on our hands. The EU did not invite United Nations Security Council member Russia to the Brussels conference. Burrell said that with its war in Ukraine, Moscow shows it has no interest in building peace. As a result, he said, the UN did not officially co-sponsor the Syria donors meeting as it has in the past. But high-level UN officials were present and actively involved in it. Lisa Bryant for VOA News, Paris. A new study led by the Marine Biological Associations of the UK and the University of Southampton, along with experts in Australia and New Zealand, found that industrialized shipping could be killing large numbers of whale sharks. For VOFU, Mercer has this report from Sydney. Marine biologists have said that whale shark numbers have been falling in recent years, but it's not been clear why. But a new international study suggests that collisions with shipping traffic could be a major factor. Researchers examined satellite data to track about 350 whale sharks. They found that the world's largest fish spend most of their time in waters used by freighters and other larger vessels. The study showed that transmissions from the tags that monitor their movements often ended in busy shipping lanes. The international team, including experts from Britain, Australia and New Zealand, believe many sharks are probably being hit and killed by boats before sinking to the ocean floor. 
Mark Erdman is from the University of Auckland in New Zealand and a scientist at Conservation International, a non-profit environmental organisation. He co-authored the study and believes shipping is a major threat to whale shark populations, which are a protected species. If we're protecting them from fisheries, why are their populations still declining? And one thought is the fact that these are big oceanic planktivores, that they move relatively slowly, feeding on the surface, spend 50% of their time in the kind of top 10 to 20 meters of the water. So it's possible that they are actually running into a lot of the global shipping. Now, what the study found is that indeed there is a tremendous amount of overlap between where whale sharks are moving and global shipping traffic. So those are real collision risk areas. Most lethal strikes are likely to go undetected or unreported. At present, there are no regulations to protect endangered whale sharks against these types of collisions. Whale sharks play an important role in the marine food web and healthy ocean ecosystems. They can grow up to 20 metres long. The study is published in the PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences Journal. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and a panel of journalists as we discuss the top stories of the week, including the potential fall of the Abortion Rights Act, Roe v. Wade, as lawmakers and officials in multiple U.S. states signaling they want to pass more restrictions on reproductive rights. This topic and more on Issues in the News this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. international edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com until next time i am Ginevra in washington wishing you a great day Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. A brutal ISIS terrorist faced justice in April when he was found guilty of participating in the heinous acts that led to the violent kidnapping, torture, and deaths of American aid workers and journalists, as well as the deaths of British and Japanese nationals in Syria. A federal jury in Virginia convicted former British citizen El Shafi El Sheikh for his role in a hostage-taking scheme that held more than two dozen people captive during the Islamic State's reign of terror between 2012 and 2015. The scheme resulted in the murder of three American men, journalists James Foley and Stephen Sotloff, and humanitarian aid worker Peter Kasich, and one woman, aid worker Kayla Muller. The three men were beheaded, and their murders were filmed and used for propaganda videos. Kayla Muller was forced into sexual slavery and repeatedly raped by Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi before she died under unknown circumstances.
In a statement, the U.S. Department of Justice noted that evidence presented during the trial showed that El Sheikh and two other ISIS members, dubbed the Beatles by the hostages because of their British accents, supervised the terrorist organization's jails and detention facilities at which the hostages were held. They were known for engaging in a prolonged pattern of physical and psychological violence against hostages. Thirty-five witnesses testified during the trial, including 12 former hostages who detailed violent and persistent beatings, sexual assaults, waterboarding, and forcible exposure to the murder of other hostages. The jury found El Sheikh guilty on all eight counts, including hostage-taking, resulting in death, conspiring to murder Americans outside the United States, and conspiring to provide material support to terrorists. El Sheikh faces a mandatory sentence of life in prison and is scheduled to be sentenced in August. After the verdict, Diane Foley, mother of slain journalist James Foley, praised the American justice system, pointing out that El Sheikh had four attorneys defending him. El Shafi El Sheikh was treated with a great deal of mercy, she said. Hopefully, we were able to turn this into justice, not revenge. The case also highlights that either in a court of law or on the battlefield, a message for terrorists sent by President Biden earlier this year holds fast. We will come after you and find you. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. This is the voice of America. Washington, Bob.